0: Section twenty one of Discourses Biological and Geological by Thomas Huxley This is a Librivox recording or Librivox recordings are in the public domain Geological Reform eighteen sixty nine Presidential Address to the Geological Society quote, A great reform in geological speculation seems now to have become necessary End Quote. quote it is quite certain that a great mistake has been made that british popular geology at the present time is in direct opposition to the principles of natural philosophy end quote. footnote on geological time by sir william thompson doctor of laws transactions of the geological society of glasgow volume 3 end of footnote In reviewing the course of geological thought during the past year for the purpose of discovering those matters to which I might most fitly direct your attention in the address which it now becomes my duty to deliver from the Presidential Chair, the two somewhat alarming sentences which I have just read, and which occur in an able and interesting essay by an eminent natural philosopher, rose into such prominence before my mind that they eclipsed everything else. It is surely a matter of paramount importance for the British geologists, some of them very popular geologists too, here in solemn annual session assembled, to inquire whether the severe judgment thus passed upon them by so high an authority as Sir William Thomson is one to which they must plead guilty sans phrase or whether they are prepared to say not guilty, and appeal for a reversal of the sentence to that higher court of educated scientific opinion to which we are all amenable. As your Attorney-General for the time being, I thought I could not do better than to get up the case with the view of advising you. It is true that the charges brought forward by the other side involved the consideration of matters quite foreign, to the pursuits with which I am ordinarily occupied, but in that respect I am only in the position which is nine times out of ten occupied by counsel, who nevertheless contrive to gain their causes, mainly by force of mother-wit and common sense, aided by some training in other intellectual exercises. Nerved by such precedents, I proceed to put my pleading before you. And the first question with which I propose to deal is, what is it to which Sir William Thomson refers when he speaks of geological speculation and British popular geology? I find three more or less contradictory systems of geological thought, each of which might fairly enough claim these appellations standing side by side in Britain i shall call one of them catastrophism another uniformitarianism the third evolutionism and i shall try briefly to sketch the characters of each that you may say whether the classification is or is not exhaustive by catastrophism i mean any form of geological speculation which in order to account for the phenomena of geology supposes the operation of forces different in their nature or immeasurably different in power from those which we at present see in action in the universe. The mosaic cosmogony is in this sense catastrophic because it assumes the operation of extra-natural power. The doctrine of violent upheavals, debarks and cataclysms in general is catastrophic so far as it assumes that these were brought about by causes which have now no parallel there was a time when catastrophism might pre-eminently have claimed the title of british popular geology and assuredly it has yet many adherents and reckons among its supporters some of the most honoured members of this society by uniformitarianism, I mean especially the teaching of Hutton and of Lyell. That great, though incomplete, work, The Theory of the Earth, seems to me to be one of the most remarkable contributions to geology which is recorded in the annals of the science. So far as the not-living world is concerned, uniformitarianism lies there not only in germ but in blossom and fruit, if one asks how it is that hutton was led to entertain views so far in advance of those prevalent in his time in some respects while in others they seem most curiously limited the answer appears to me to be plain hutton was in advance of the geological speculation of his time because in the first place he had amassed a vast store of knowledge of the facts of geology gathered by personal observation in travels of considerable extent, and because in the second place he was thoroughly trained in the physical and chemical science of his day, and thus possessed as much as any one in his time could possess it, the knowledge which is requisite for the just interpretation of geological phenomena, and the habit of thought which fits a man for scientific inquiry it is to this thorough scientific training that i ascribe hutton's steady and persistent refusal to look to other causes than those now in operation for the explanation of geological phenomena thus he writes quote, i do not pretend as he in square brackets monsieur de luc does in his theory to describe the beginning of things I take things such as I find them at present, and from these I reason with regard to that which must have been End quote. and again quote, a theory of the earth which has for object truth and have no retrospect to that which have preceded the present order of the world, for this order alone is what we have to reason upon. And to reason without data is nothing but delusion. A theory, therefore, which is limited to the actual constitution of this earth cannot be allowed to proceed one step beyond the present order of things End quote. and so clear is he that no causes beside such as are now in operation are needed to account for the character and disposition of the components of the crust of the earth. That he says broadly and boldly, quote, There is no part of the earth which has not had the same origin, so far as this consists in that earth being collected at the bottom of the sea and afterwards produced as land, along with masses of melted substances, by the operation of mineral causes. End quote. But other influences were at work upon Hutton beside those of a mind logical by nature and scientific by sound training and the peculiar tone which his speculations took seems to me to be unintelligible unless these be taken into account the arguments of the french astronomers and mathematicians which at the end of the last century were held to demonstrate the existence of a compensating arrangement among the celestial bodies were by all perturbations eventually reduced themselves to oscillations on each side of a mean position, and the stability of the solar system was secured, had evidently taken strong hold of Hutton's mind. In those oddly constructed periods which seem to have prejudiced many persons against reading his works, but which are full of that peculiar, if unattractive, eloquence which flows from mastery of the subject, Hutton says quote, we have now got to the end of our reasoning we have no data further to conclude immediately from that which actually is but we have got enough we have the satisfaction to find that in nature there is wisdom system and consistency for having in the natural history of this earth seen a succession of worlds we may from this conclude that there is a system in nature. In like manner as from seeing revolutions of the planet, it is concluded there is a system by which they are intended to continue those revolutions. But if the succession of worlds is established in the system of nature, it is in vain to look for anything higher in the origin of the earth the result therefore of this physical inquiry is that we find no vestige of a beginning no prospect of an end, end yet another influence worked strongly upon hutton like most philosophers of his age he coquetted with those final causes which have been named barren virgins but which might be more fitly termed the hetairae of philosophy so constantly have they led men astray. The final cause of the existence of the world is, for Hutton, the production of life and intelligence. Quote, we have now considered the globe of this earth as a machine, constructed upon chemical as well as mechanical principles, by which its different parts are all adapted in form, in quality, and in quantity, to a certain end an end attained with certainty or success and an end from which you may perceive wisdom in contemplating the means employed but is this world to be considered thus merely as a machine to last no longer than its parts retain their present position their proper forms and qualities or may it not be also considered as an organized body such as has a constitution in which the necessary decay of the machine is naturally repaired by the exertion of those productive powers by which it had been formed. This is the view in which we are now to examine the globe to see if there be in the constitution of this world a reproductive operation by which a ruined constitution may be again repaired and a duration or stability thus procured to the machine considered as a world sustaining plants and animals, end quote. and the other Philistines of the day accused Hutton of declaring that his theory implied that the world never had a beginning, and never differed in condition from its present state. Nothing could be more grossly unjust, as he expressly guards himself against any such conclusion in the following terms, Quote, but in thus tracing back the natural operations which have succeeded each other and marked to us the course of time past we come to a period in which we cannot see any farther this however is not the beginning of the operations which proceed in time and according to the wise economy of this world nor is it the establishing of that which in the course of time had no beginning it is only the limit of our retrospective view of these operations which have come to pass in time, and have been conducted by supreme intelligence." I have spoken of uniformitarianism as the doctrine of Hutton and of Lyell. If I have quoted the older writer rather than the newer, it is because his works are little known and his claims on our veneration too frequently forgotten, not because I desire to dim the fame of his eminent successor. Few of the present generation of geologists have read Playfair's illustrations. Fewer still the original theory of the earth, the more is the pity. But which of us has not thumbed every page of the principles of geology? I think that he who writes fairly the history of his own progress in geological thought will not be able to separate his debt to Hutton from his obligations to Lyell. And the history of the progress of individual geologists is the history of geology. No one can doubt that the influence of uniformitarian views has been enormous, and in the main most beneficial and favourable to the progress of sound geology. Nor can it be questioned that uniformitarianism has even a stronger title than catastrophism to call itself the geological speculation of Britain, or if you will, British popular geology, for it is eminently a British doctrine and has even now made comparatively little progress on the continent of Europe. Nevertheless, it seems to me to be open to serious criticism upon one of its aspects. I have shown how unjust was the insinuation that Hutton denied a beginning to the world. But it would not be unjust to say that he persistently, in practice, shut his eyes to the existence of that prior and different state of things which, in theory, he admitted... And in this aversion to look beyond the veil of stratified rocks, Lyell follows him. Hutton and Lyell alike agree in their indisposition to carry their speculations a step beyond the period recorded in the most ancient strata now open to observation in the crust of the earth. This is for Hutton the point at which we cannot see any farther. While Lyle tells us, quote, The astronomer may find good reasons for ascribing the Earth's form to the original fluidity of the mass in times long antecedent to the first introduction of living beings into the planet, but the geologist must be content to regard the earliest monuments which it is his task to interpret as belonging to a period when the crust had already acquired great solidity and thickness, probably as great as it now possesses and when volcanic rocks not essentially differing from those now produced were formed from time to time the intensity of volcanic heat being neither greater nor less than it is now end quote. and again quote, as geologists we learn that it is not only the present condition of the globe which has been suited to the accommodation of myriads of living creatures but that many former states also have been adapted to the organisation and habits of prior races of beings. The disposition of the seas, continents and islands and the climates have varied. The species likewise have been changed. And yet they have all been so modelled on types analogous to those of existing plants and animals as to indicate throughout a perfect harmony of design and unity of purpose. To assume that the evidence of the beginning or end of so vast a scheme lies within the reach of our philosophical inquiries, or even of our speculations, appears to be inconsistent with a just estimate of the relations which subsist between the finite powers of man and the attributes of an infinite and eternal being. End quote. The limitations implied in these passages appear to me to constitute the weakness and the logical defect of uniformitarianism. No one will impute blame to Hutton that in face of the imperfect condition in his day of those physical sciences which furnish the keys to the riddles of geology, he should have thought it practical wisdom to limit his theory to an attempt to account for the present order of things, but I am at a loss to comprehend why for all time the geologist must be content to regard the oldest fossiliferous rocks as the ultimate Thule of his science, or what there is inconsistent with the relations between the finite and the infinite mind in the assumption that we may discern somewhat of the beginning or of the end of this speck in space we call our earth. The finite mind is certainly competent to trace out the development of the fowl within the egg, and I know not on what ground it should find more difficulty in unravelling the complexities of the development of the earth. In fact, as Kant has well remarked, the cosmical process is really simpler than the biological. This attempt to limit at a particular point the progress of inductive and deductive reasoning from the things which are to those which were this faithlessness to its own logic seems to me to have cost uniformitarianism the place as the permanent form of geological speculation which it might otherwise have held it remains that i should put before you what i understand to be the third phase of geological speculation namely evolutionism. I shall not make what I have to say on this head clear unless I diverge or seem to diverge for a while from the direct path of my discourse so far as to explain what I take to be the scope of geology itself. I conceive geology to be the history of the earth in precisely the same sense as biology is the history of living beings. And I trust you will not think that I am overpowered by the influence of a dominant pursuit if I say that I trace a close analogy between these two histories. If I study a living being, under what heads does the knowledge I obtain fall? I can learn its structure, or what we call its anatomy, and its development, or the series of changes which it passes through to acquire its complete structure, then I find that the living being has certain powers, resulting from its own activities and the interaction of these with the activities of other beings, the knowledge of which is physiology. Beyond this, the living being has a position in space and time which is its distribution. All these form the body of ascertainable facts which constitute the status quo of the living creature. But these facts have their causes, and the ascertainment of these causes is the doctrine of etiology. If we consider what is knowable about the earth, we shall find that such earth knowledge, if I may so translate the word geology, falls into the same categories. What is termed stratigraphical geology is neither more nor less than the anatomy of the earth. And the history of the succession of the formations is the history of a succession of such anatomies, or corresponds with development as distinct from generation. The internal heat of the earth, the elevation and depression of its crust, its belchings forth of vapours ashes and lava are its activities in as strict a stricter sense as are warmth and the movements and products of respiration the activities of an animal the phenomena of the seasons of the trade-winds of the gulf-stream are as much the results of the reaction between these inner activities and outward forces as are the budding of the leaves in spring and their falling in autumn the effects of the interaction between the organization of a plant and the solar light and heat and as the study of the activities of the living being is called its physiology so are these phenomena the subject matter of an analogous telluric physiology to which we sometimes give the name of meteorology, sometimes that of physical geography, sometimes that of geology. Again, the earth has a place in space and in time, and relations to other bodies in both these respects, which constitute its distribution. This subject is usually left to the astronomer but a knowledge of its broad outline seems to me to be an essential constituent of the stock of geological ideas. All that can be ascertained concerning the structure, succession of conditions, actions and position in space of the earth is the matter of fact of its natural history. But as in biology there remains the matter of reasoning, from these facts to their causes which is just as much science as the other and indeed more and this constitutes geological etiology having regard to this general scheme of geological knowledge and thought it is obvious that geological speculation may be so to speak anatomical and developmental speculation so far as it relates to points of stratigraphical arrangement which are out of reach of direct observation or it may be physiological speculation so far as it relates to undetermined problems relative to the activities of the earth or it may be distributional speculation if it deals with modifications of the earth's place in space or finally it will be etiological speculation if it attempts to deduce the history of the world as a whole from the known properties of the matter of the earth in the conditions in which the earth has been placed. For the purposes of the present discourse, I may take this last to be what is meant by geological speculation. Now, uniformitarianism, as we have seen, tends to ignore geological speculation in this sense altogether. The one point the catastrophists and the uniformitarians agreed upon when this society was founded was to ignore it. And you will find, if you look back into our records, that our revered fathers in geology plumed themselves a good deal upon the practical sense and wisdom of this proceeding as a temporary measure i do not presume to challenge its wisdom but in all organized bodies temporary changes are apt to produce permanent effects and as time has slipped by altering all the conditions which may have made such a mortification of the scientific flesh desirable I think the effect of the stream of cold water which has steadily flowed over geological speculation within these walls has been of doubtful beneficence. The sort of geological speculation to which I am now referring, geological etiology in short, was created as a science by that famous philosopher Immanuel Kant, when, in 1775, he wrote his General Natural History and Theory of the Celestial Bodies, or an attempt to account for the constitutional and the mechanical origin of the universe upon Newtonian principles. In this very remarkable but seemingly little-known treatise, Kant expounds a complete cosmogony in the shape of a theory of the causes which have led to the development of the universe, from diffused atoms of matter, endowed with simple, attractive and repulsive forces. Give me matter, says Kant, and I will build the world. And he proceeds to deduce from the simple data from which he starts, a doctrine in all essential respects similar to the well-known nebular hypothesis of Laplace, he accounts for the relation of the masses and the densities of the planets to their distances from the Sun, for the eccentricities of their orbits, for their rotations, for their satellites, for the general agreement in the direction of rotation among the celestial bodies, for Saturn's ring, and for the zodiacal light. He finds in each system of worlds indications that the attractive force of the central mass will eventually destroy its organization by concentrating upon itself the matter of the whole system. But as the result of this concentration, he argues for the development of an amount of heat which will dissipate the mass once more into a molecular chaos such as that in which it began. Kant pictures to himself the universe as once an infinite expansion of formless and diffused matter. At one point of this he supposes a single centre of attraction set up, and by strict deductions from admitted dynamical principles, shows how this must result in the development of a prodigious central body surrounded by systems of solar and planetary worlds in all stages of development. In vivid language he depicts the great world maelstrom widening the margins of its prodigious eddy in the slow progress of millions of ages, gradually reclaiming more and more of the molecular waste and converting chaos into cosmos. But what is gained at the margin is lost in the centre the attractions of the central systems bring their constituents together which then by the heat evolved are converted once more into molecular chaos thus the worlds that are lie between the ruins of the worlds that have been and the chaotic materials of the worlds that shall be and in spite of all waste and destruction, Cosmos is extending his borders at the expense of Chaos. Kant's further application of his views to the earth itself is to be found in his Treatise on Physical Geography, a term under which the then unknown science of geology was included, a subject which he had studied with very great care, and on which he lectured for many years. The fourth section of the first part of this treatise is called History of the Great Changes Which the Earth Has Formerly Undergone and Is Still Undergoing and is in fact a brief and pregnant essay upon the principles of geology. Kant gives an account first of quote, the gradual changes which are now taking place unquote, under the heads of such as are caused by earthquakes such as are brought about by rain and rivers, such as are effected by the sea, such as are produced by winds and frost, and finally, such as result from the operations of man. The second part is devoted to the memorials of the changes which the earth has undergone in remote antiquity. These are enumerated as a proofs that the sea formerly covered the whole earth, B. Proofs that the sea has often been changed into dry land and then again into sea. C. A discussion of the various theories of the earth put forward by Schweitzer, Moro, Bonnet, Woodward, White, Leibniz, Linnaeus and Buffon. The third part contains an attempt to give a sound explanation of the ancient history of the earth. I suppose that it will be very easy to pick holes in the details of Kant's speculations, whether cosmological or specially telluric in their application, but for all that he seems to me to have been the first person to frame a complete system of geological speculation by founding the doctrine of evolution. With as much truth as Hutton, Kant could say, I take things just as I find them at present, and from these I reason with regard to that which must have been. Like Hutton, he is never tired of pointing out that in nature there is wisdom, system and consistency, and as in these great principles, so in believing that the cosmos has a reproductive operation by which a ruined constitution may be repaired. He forestalls Hutton, while, on the other hand, Kant is true to science. He knows no bounds to geological speculation but those of the intellect. He reasons back to the beginning of the present state of things. He admits the possibility of an end. End of section 21.